Okay, let's stop and ask God's help. Lord, would you show us wonderful things out of your word today? Things that would delight our hearts, thrill our souls, make us more reverent, give us a greater fear of God and a greater love for our Lord Jesus. Would you do that work, Lord, by your spirit today? Open up this text in Revelation that it would be a blessing to us today, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to read the whole chapter just to get started. Uh, Revelation chapter 5. So we've been working through chapter 4. We're just going to keep going into chapter 5 today. Okay, remember that John is seeing a vision of heaven. And in chapter 4, he sees a vision of the throne and the one sitting on the throne. And he sees that all of heaven is worshiping God the Father because he's the one that created all things. And by his will, they existed and were created. And that just continues. We don't come to a new scene. This is the same heavenly scene, but we're going to see a different aspect of what's going on in heaven in chapter 5. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What a chapter. <laughs> this is an astonishing scene. Chapter 4 is like the backdrop to chapter 5. 
Chapter 4 gives us, uh, he sets the stage for what's coming here in chapter 5. And chapter 5 is really the reason John is called up into heaven. God wants him to see what's going on here in this chapter. And we're going to work our way through the chapter and look at three things today. The sealed scroll, that's verses 1 to 4. And then the lion lamb, that's Christ, that's verses 5 through 7. And then the crescendo of creation, that's the ending of this chapter, and that's verses 8 to 14. So let's move our way through and take a look at these three areas. So first of all, the sealed scroll. Now your Bible and my Bible says a book. There was a book in the right hand um, of him, God the Father. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. But in ancient times, they didn't have books like we do today. We, we have a book that has pieces of paper that are glued to a spine, and you've got a, a front and a back cover, and very convenient, very nice. But in those days, they had scrolls. So what he's really referring to is a scroll. Now, the scrolls were made of parchment. I'm sorry. Well, they, some of them were made of parchment or animal skins, but... Uh, but the, the writing material upon which they were written was papyrus. A papyrus was a plant that grew in the, the swamps around the Nile River. And they would take this plant and they would cut off the outer edges of it. And then they'd slice up that which is in the middle to where it was flat. It had the texture sort of, I, I'm just giving all this because I did a little bit of research on it. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was the texture of celery, they say. But it wasn't round like celery, it was flat. And they would take, take it and cut it up and soak it in water for about a week, take it out. Uh, they'd lay down strips next to each other hor um, vertically, and then they'd take other strips and put it on top per, um, horizontally. So first vertical, then horizontal, so it's kind of crisscrossing each other. And then take a, something hard like a wooden mallet and smash it just hit it down, and then put it out in the sun to dry. And after it dried, those, those layers would be fused together, almost like they were glued. And so you had something you could write on at that point. So that was their writing material. Aren't you glad that we have paper that we can write on today? I mean, look at all the effort just to come up with one piece of paper to write on. But they would have these pieces of papyrus, and then they would fasten them together to make a scroll, you'd have a spindle, and they'd wrap this papyrus around, and you'd just keep wrapping it and wrapping it, and you could have 30 or 35 feet of scroll. Remember when, when Jesus went into the synagogue? It says that he took the scroll, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, he says, and he took the scroll of Isaiah. So they had different scrolls for the different prophets, and they'd take the scroll of Isaiah and unwrap it and find chapter whatever it is, Back then they didn't have chapters, but they would find the portion where it was read, written of Christ, and he would read it to them. So here we've got a scroll, a fairly long scroll, because it's sealed seven times. Um, we're also told that this scroll was written inside and on the back. The only other time in the Bible where we have something that's written on the inside and on the back is Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And in that situation, what was written on the scroll were lamentations, mourning, and woe. 
which actually fits the description of Revelation, because as soon as these seals are starting to be broken, lamentations, mourning, and woe break out on the earth because God's judgments are being released on the earth. Um, so it's written on both sides, the front and the back. Papyrus paper was very time-consuming, so of course they wouldn't want to waste it. So they, of course they would write on both sides of it. You, it might, it might, I don't know how long it would take, but a long time just to come up with something to write on. And also on legal documents, it was imperative to include the entirety of the document on one scroll. You wouldn't want to have several scrolls. You would want it to include it on one. So you would, if you couldn't fit it all on the front side, you'd turn it over and write it on the back side. Roll it up, and there you have it. The scroll in heaven must have had so much written on it that it had to be written on both sides. There's a lot there. So what does the scroll contain? What's written on this scroll? Well, I think we can deduce that because as soon, and when we get to chapter 6, the, the seals of the scroll are slit one at a time, and as each one is slit, part of it is unwrapped, and you can read part of this scroll, and something corresponding to what is written in the scroll happens on the earth. So my deduction from this is that What's written in the scroll? The world's destiny. What God has purposed to take place on the earth is written in the scrolls. And little by little, as each seal is broken, something else takes place on the earth. So this would be God's eternal purpose for his creation. His decrees concerning the world that we live in. Um, we, we know that the scroll is sealed. We're told that back in chapter 5, verse 1. It was sealed up with seven seals. So if a scroll in ancient times contained private information or sensitive information that you didn't want other people to read, you would roll it up and then you would seal it. You'd put a dab of wax on the end and then you'd put the impression of the seal into that wax and now it became uh, illegal. You're committing some kind of a crime if you go and just break this thing to look in the document because it's sealed up for a purpose. So this one has seven seals. So it'd be a long scroll. You'd, you'd wind it up partway, put two dabs of wax on either side, roll it up a little bit more, put two more, and you do that seven different times. So it's, it's sealed seven different times. And when the seal of a legal document, like a will, was broken, when that seal was slit on the sides, it's not just so that you could read what was in that document, but it's so that the contents of the document would be carried out. And I think that's what we have here in this, this book. When, when this scroll, the seals are broken, it's being carried out. The, the things that are written in it start to take place on the earth. So this is the kind of scroll we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 5. If the seals are not broken, it's not just that John doesn't get to take a peek into the future. I mean, notice here that he's, he's, he's weeping. I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself because I can't. <laughs> oh, well. I'm just going to go verse by verse then because I can't find what I was looking for. Okay. <laughs> verse 4. Okay. 
Well, I'll get there in just a minute. So, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back. Who's the one on the throne? It's God the Father. It's in his right hand. What does the right hand signify? Power and strength. No one else can take this out of God's hand. He's the Almighty. He's got it in his hand. Um, he sees a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, why would this angel proclaim this with such a loud voice? He says, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Well, he must want all of heaven to hear this question because he wants all of heaven to hear the answer. So the scroll is in the right hand of God the Father, the place of all power and authority. The strong angel asks this question with a very loud voice. All of heaven is listening. The interesting thing is that there was no human that was worthy to take the book and to break its seals, and there was no angel worthy. There was no one in heaven that was worthy to do this. And when John saw that, he starts to weep. Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly. Weep greatly. He's sobbing. It's audible groaning. Audible sobs are coming from John. He's overcome with sadness and emotion because nobody can break the seals to look into this book. Now, why would that, why would that concern John? Why would he weep because the book could not be opened? I think the answer is because if the book is not opened, God's purposes for the world are not going to come to fruition. If, if the book is not opened, there's going to be no judgment for evil. If the book is not opened, there's not going to be any new heaven or new earth in which the righteous will dwell. If the book is not opened, this creation will forever be subjected to futility. It will never be recreated into a perfect world the way we know. Second Peter 3 says we're going to have a new earth in which righteousness dwells. None of that will ever happen because God's purposes for this world won't come to pass. So John is, is thinking, someone's got to open it. It's got to be open because I, we've got to see God's will take place on this planet. We've seen the devil's will and we've seen sin reign for thousands of years. We've got to see God have his rulership over this world. Who can do it? Who's worthy to open the book? If the book is not opened, it means there's no final salvation, no final judgment. It means there's no final bodily resurrection of the dead. It means that all the wrongs of this world will never be righted. The jo God's justice will not be displayed. What about the hundreds of thousands of Christians who were tortured unmercifully and then killed for their faith as martyrs? That will never be put to right if this book is not opened. What about the Christian wife who's beaten senseless by a godless husband who hates Christ and the gospel day after day? That wrong will never be put right. And you can just add your own situation in there. No, none of the evils of this world will ever be taken care of. Justice will not take place. If the scroll isn't opened, everything is meaningless. There's no divine purpose in everything. There's no justice. There's no righting of the wrongs. If the seals of the scroll are not broken, the persecutors triumph. 
Believers do not overcome. There's no new heaven and no earth and no eternal inheritance. Do you, do you see why John would sob? He wants, he wants to see God's kingdom come to this world. And the book has to be open for that to happen. So there we have the sealed scrolls. Now, no angel could open it. No human was worthy to open it. Even God is not going to open the scroll. God the Father. Now, why not? I, I think, and I'm conjecturing here, but I think the answer must be because it was, a, it was man who fell. Man who threw this world into such misery and ruin. Man screwed the whole thing up. So another man has to bring about God's destiny to this world. God's not going to do it himself. It's got to be another human. But there is no human who's worthy. So the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is human, who is divine, he's going to bring about the restitution of all things. He's going to restore this sin-cursed world back to the way God wants it to be. All right, let's take a look at the lion-lamb, starting in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, who's the lion from the tribe of Judah? Jesus Christ. No question about that. Uh, Genesis 49.10 talks about him being a lion's whelp, coming from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus was born from that particular tribe. A lion suggests royalty, majesty, strength, and Jesus is all of those things. He's royal, he's majestic, he's powerful. And we're also told that he's the root of David. Now the root of something is the source of that plant life. The originator, the, the source, the originator. Jesus is the source of David. Do you remember when Jesus was quizzing the scribes and the Pharisees? This is in Matthew 22, 41 to 45. He says, who do you think that the, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? By Christ, he means Messiah. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son will the Messiah be? They said, well, he'll be the son of David. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What was Jesus doing there? He was saying that the Lord God said to David's Lord, I want you to sit at the right hand of God the Father until all your enemies are made a footstool for your feet. Now everyone knew that prophecy in Psalm 110 verse 1 was about the Messiah. So what Jesus was doing is saying, well, you're right. He is the son of David, but he's much more than that. He's the Lord of David. The Lord said to my Lord, that's David speaking, my Lord is the Messiah. So he's not just David's son, he's the Lord of David, the God of David, the creator of David. So when we read here about the root of David, we're talking about someone who's much greater than just a physical descendant from David. He's the Lord over David or the creator of all things. And we're told also, in verse 5, Stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. So Jesus had to overcome in order to be worthy to break these seals. He had to do something. Now, what did Jesus overcome? Death. He overcame death, that's for sure. 
He rose from the dead. He overcame sin, didn't he? He died to sin. He died for sin, and he died to sin. He overcame Satan in his death. Colossians chapter 2 tells us that he, he reigned victorious over Satan through the cross. And he overcame hell. Jesus overcame. And we're told here that because he overcame, now he is worthy to open the book and the seven seals. In other words, God's purposes for the world can now be accomplished because we have a man who's restoring this world back to its original, beautiful, uh, sinless condition that God created it. Jesus is going to, to restore all things. And through his perfect life, and his substitutionary death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to heaven, he overcame. And now he's the one who's worthy. And that's why when we get to verse 9, all of the angels break out, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. See, there are, the, the, the chapter starts with the question, who's worthy? And the answer is in verse 9, Christ is worthy. For you were slain. That's why you're worthy. You were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So what that is saying is that as a reward for Christ's obedience unto death, God gave him the right to bring about his will for the world. He sits at the right hand of God co-ruling with the Father. Matthew 28, 18. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now this happened after his death on the cross and his resurrection. As a result of his willingness to go to that cross, God rewards him and says, Here's all authority in heaven and on earth. Philippians 2, 8. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now get this, for this reason also, for that reason that he died on the cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the connection between the cross work of Christ and his glorification and being Lord over all? That's how Paul puts it here in Philippians 2. Now, this doesn't mean that the Father abdicates his throne. He doesn't get off the throne and leave. What it does mean is that Jesus comes and sits down with the Father on his throne. That's what we find in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. In verse 1, it says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You've got a throne with two people on it. <laughs> God and the Lamb are there. Or verse 3, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. So God is now governing the universe through the Lamb. And of course, the Lamb speaks of Jesus Christ, the slain one. Okay, back in Revelation 5, where is Jesus in this whole scene, in this vision? Verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. So where is he? He's standing in the center of the throne. That's what verse 6 is talking about. 
And I saw between the throne, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing, as if slain. Now Jesus is not falling on his face before the throne like the elders do, or like the four living creatures. He's standing. And we're going to find that all of heaven is bowing down to him. <laughs> so he's not worshiping God, he's being worshiped by the hosts of heaven. And then we find in verse 6, we've already seen that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But here in verse 6 it says that he's like a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. So the first time Jesus came into the world, he came as a lamb. He came as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Meek, lowly, humble. He condescended to be born like a, a little baby, carried for nine months in the womb of Mary. You know, that's, he, he was the lamb. And then he, he came into this world to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. So the whole purpose of his coming was to die for sinners. But when he comes back, it's not going to be as a lamb. It's going to be as a lion. It's going to be as king. All power is given to him. And in the first time he came with great compassion, great love for sinners. But folks, when he comes back, the opportunities for salvation are gone. And he comes back as a ruling king to dash his enemies with, with a, like a rod of iron. So he comes, he came the first time to provide salvation and offer mercy to the human race. But when he comes a second time, he will judge those who have turned and spurned that offer of mercy, and he'll be their judge. And he will punish and destroy them in hell. So he's both the lamb and the lion. We tend to have just one view of Jesus. We think of him as the lamb. But he's more than that. He's much more than that, folks. He's also the lion. That You don't want to mess with this lion. You, you, will, you will not come out on top if you try to mess with this lion. He will devour you. Now this, lion, or this lamb had seven horns. A horn speaks of power. The number seven speaks of fullness. Jesus has the fullness of power. He's not a weak lion. He's a powerful, all-powerful lion. And he also has seven eyes. And we're told here the eyes represent the seven spirits of God. We learned from our study a week or two ago that these, uh, there's not seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit, but this speaks about the fullness of the Spirit. And in John 3.34, we're told there that God gave him the Spirit without measure. The fullness of the Spirit is upon Jesus Christ. So there we have the lion lamb. Now let's look at the crescendo of creation, starting in verse 8. And the first thing I want you to notice about this section is that the lamb is worshipped. Look at verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now remember in chapter 4, they fell down before the throne. God the Father is on the throne. Well, the very same ones that fell down before God the Father are falling down before Jesus. What does falling down before someone signify? Worship. The hosts of heaven are worshiping Jesus. Never get the impression that Jesus was just a good man, just a prophet. 
just a religious leader that we should respect. He's much more than that. He's worshipped by angels in heaven. He's worshipped by the redeemed sinners there, the spirits of just men made perfect. He's the object of worship in heaven. And then verse 9, worthy are you. They're directing this song, this new song to Jesus. Worthy are you because you were slain. And then verse 12, worthy is the lamb. This is what heaven is crying. Worthy is the lamb of God. And verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And then verse 14, and the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. What I want you to see here is that Jesus Christ is worshiped. Now, when we get to chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, there's an interesting little incident that takes place in verse 8. It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But the angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship who? God. If you ever have a doubt in your mind whether Jesus is God, just look at the book of Revelation. It would be impossible for the scenes that we read about in Revelation to have been written by the hand of God if Jesus is not God in the flesh because he's worshipped and only God is to be worshipped. Angels will not allow themselves to be worshipped. Neither should any human ever allow himself to be worshipped. God alone is to be worshipped and all of heaven bows down before the feet of Jesus Christ, the slain lamb, and worships him. So this shows us the full deity of Christ. Never be deceived by those cults that will tell you Jesus is not God. Just read the book of Revelation. And, and so you need to be convinced that Jesus is God in the flesh. And, and don't let any cult, no matter if it's Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, all of the cults deny the deity of Christ. Just take a look in your Bible at what heaven thinks about Jesus. What's their estimation of Christ? They, they worship him. Now notice also in verse 8 that these, uh, these ones in heaven take harps. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, so we've got the four living creatures and the 24 elders, so this would be representatives of the high angelic hosts and also the redeemed sinners that are there. What are they doing? They're taking harps. Sometimes we envision heaven as being a monotonous place, boring where we sit on clouds and pluck harps and pop grapes in our mouth and just wait. We wait for eternity to end so we can get on with it. But, 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 but the, the harp was a, a musical instrument that denoted happiness and joy and celebration and beauty and life. And these, these ones in heaven are playing harps because they're excited and they're happy and they're celebrating being in the presence of the Lord. And... Of course, when we come to the book of Revelation, we see lots of symbols. And so I, I see the harp as representative. Now, I might be wrong about this, but I see it as representative of any kind of musical instrument. So this has led me to think, well, maybe there will be 
various musical instruments in heaven by which we will worship the Lord. Not just harps, but maybe that's just representative of all kinds. So maybe you're going to have pianos, guitars, sitars, violins, mandolins, cellos. Yep. I was getting to that. <laughs> Basses, dobros, harmonicas, drums, flutes, trumpets, saxophones, tubas, auto harps, and maybe even banjos. And if they allow... <laughs> and if they... <laughs> Yeah, could be, could be. But I, I hope if they, if they do allow banjos in heaven, the Lord's going to let me play for him. <laughs> I want to play for my Lord Jesus. So the harps are pointing to the spirit of celebration and joy and gladness and the worship of heaven. We're also told that there's these bowls full of incense in verse 8. Each one of these guys is holding a harp, and they're also holding these golden bowls full of incense. And we're told what these bowls of incense represent. They represent the prayers of the saints. Now, interestingly, we do have an example of one of these prayers of the saints in chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. So just flip your, your Bible page over and look at this. Revelation 6, 9, it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these are the martyrs. These are the ones who have been killed for their testimony of the gospel. And we've had thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians who have been killed over the centuries because they born a faithful testimony to Jesus Christ. And the souls, not their bodies, because they haven't been resurrected yet, but their souls are under the altar, and they're crying out to God and asking Him, how long are you going to wait before you judge those who persecuted and killed us? So there's one of the prayers of the saints that's going up. And we're told that they're, these prayers are like incense. Now, you may not like the smell of incense, but it's a sweet smell. And I think it's sweet-smelling because these prayers reflect the very purposes that are included in the scroll that's going to be broken and carried out on the earth. All of God's purpose is coming to pass for the world. So they're praying that the Lord would bring those things to pass. And so it's, it's like incense. It smells sweet in the nostrils of God. Then verse 9 talks about a new song. And they sang a new song. Now after God delivered Israel... You remember when he brought them through the Red Sea on dry land? Yes. And then he brought the waters down on the Egyptians to destroy them? The Israelites sang a new song. You can read it on your own time later. It's Exodus 15. God delivered them. He destroyed the enemies and saved them. And they sang this brand new song. And Miriam's there with her timbrels. And they're dancing. And they're singing on the other side of the Red Sea. So redemption spawned this new song of praise and worship to God. Well, we find the same thing here. There's a new song because God has done an, a, another work of redemption. And the work of redemption He has done is the work of Christ on the cross to redeem us from sin. And so heaven now erupts with a brand new song. We get a kind of a preview of it. Maybe we can learn the words before we get there so we're already ready to sing it. <laughs> And, and here we have this new song of redemption. Now, this, this 
whole situation shows me how the church is the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. Because there's so many connections between the Old Testament Israelites and the New Testament people of God. I just want to go over a little bit of this with you. This song has such rich overtones from the original Exodus. Now why is Jesus considered worthy? Well, the event is that he was slain. We find that in Revelation 5.9. The meaning of the event is that because he was slain, he purchased men for God. What's the result of the event? Christ made those people that he redeemed or purchased to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So the event, the cross. The meaning of the event, redemption. The result of redemption, the people that are redeemed are priests to God who reign on the earth with Christ. Okay? Now, if you go back to the Old Testament event, the event was Passover. The lamb was killed, the blood put over the door, the angel comes through, when he sees the blood, he doesn't strike the firstborn dead. He's merciful towards the firstborn. So there's the, the event, the Passover. The meaning of that event was that God had passed over all the firstborn and then purchased them for himself. The result of the event is that all of Israel then became a kingdom of priests. We find that in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. The whole nation became a kingdom of priests to God. It says there, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the people of Israel prefigure the church of the New Testament in so many ways. For example, the Old Testament Passover prefigures the cross. The lamb slain then prefigures the lamb of God to be slain in the New Testament. The Old Testament exodus from Egypt prefigures our separation from the world. The Old Testament circumcision prefigures our circumcision of the heart, the new birth. The Sabbath of the Old Testament prefigures our resting in Christ for salvation. The things that were physical under the Old Covenant point to something in, that are spiritual in the New Covenant. So what you see going on is that we, we're the new Israel. We're the true Israel of God. Now I know there's, there's different views of, of how... I don't even know how to put it. <laughs> so Philippians 3.3. 3. I'm going to just quote three New Testament verses that show how the church is the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. Philippians 3.3. 3. We are the true circumcision. Who is? The ones who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, circumcision, that's what happened to Jews. That's how they were initiated into the, the covenant. Well, he says, we're the true circumcision, the real Israelites, the true Israelites, the ones who worship in the Spirit, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Or Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Who's, in, who's a descendant of Abraham? Well, the ones that belong to Christ. Christians are the descendants of Abraham, and their heirs according to promise. Or Romans 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So, in heaven we worship the Lamb because he has fulfilled 
his covenant promises, not just the old covenant promises. He has done that, but the promises that he made to us, his church, as the true Israel of God. Okay, let's notice also the sacrifice, verses 9 and 10. First thing to notice about the sacrifice is that it was bloody. Uh, we're back in Revelation 5, okay. verse 9. Because it says there, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. So it mentions the blood of Christ being part of the sacrifice of Christ when he was slain. So when the Bible mentions the blood of Christ, it's simply speaking about his death. It's another way of talking about the death of Christ. I don't think we should look at the blood of Christ in like a superstitious way. I know a lot of people, I don't, might be stepping on toes to say this, but I'll just do it anyway. And you guys are for, will forgive me if, if I step on your toe. <laughs> but a lot of people talk about pleading the blood. I'm, we just, I want to plead the blood over my house. And um, I guess what they think that means is that if you plead the blood, whatever pleading the blood means, that stops the devil or his demons from being able to hang around your house. Um, the, the problem is pleading the blood is nowhere in the Bible. This is something that's come, it's come into our evangelical tradition somehow. Someone introduced it and we all jumped on the bandwagon. Um, but I, I think it's a superstitious belief. It's not something that God has told us to do. We don't find an example of it anywhere. It's just something that's come in. Uh, so this sacrifice was bloody. Number two, it was effective because we find in verse nine that it actually accomplished something. What did it accomplish? It accomplished purchasing for God with the blood of Christ men out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now, it didn't redeem every tribe, but it redeemed some men out of every tribe. So in the cross, there are universal aspects and there are particular aspects. The universal aspect is that no tribe has been exempted no people group on the earth are left without some being trophies of grace for Christ. Some people are being saved out of every, every people group on the earth. But then there's particular aspects because by the death of Christ, Jesus actually purchased and redeemed certain people out of all those various tribes. So you see his universal sacrifice, making his blood, his sacrifice available as an offer of salvation to all the world. But it also accomplishes something very effective and very particular. It actually redeems or purchases certain people out of the world. So God is going to have representatives from every people group in heaven worshiping the Lamb. Turn over to chapter 21 of Revelation. And this is exciting here. I like this. Look at uh, Revelation 21, 24. This is talking about our eternal state. What, what our eternal future will be like. It says, the, na the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no light night there, its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. 
So here we're told that the nations are going to walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into this new Jerusalem, this new city of God. And they're going to bring their glory and the honor of the nations into it. So you're going to have millions of Chinese Christians bringing the glory of China <laughs> into this new Jerusalem. And you're going to have millions of people from Africa who have been saved by the blood of Christ. And you've got, you got those guys over here. And then you've got the Egyptians. And you've got us Americans. We're going to be there too. And you've got the, the people from Chile and Brazil and Ireland and Scotland and England and Germany and France and Wales and all over the earth. And they're all bringing their glory into this new Jerusalem. That which is distinctive about them that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, they're bringing that in and it's, it's bringing their glory into this, this place where God is worshipped. It, it seems to me that the Bible is saying that that which makes our, our nations distinct, the culture, the background, that, that will be restored and it will be redeemed through Christ and those good things that he built into each of these cultures will come into this new Jerusalem and enhance and add to the enjoyment of heaven as we watch one another. It's kind of like our church is supposed to be a miniature of heaven where all the cultures and all the peoples and all the kinds of people come together and worship Christ the Lamb. There you go. That's right. Amen. So this sacrifice was bloody, effective. It was also purposeful. Because our text says in Revelation 5.9... You were slain and purchased for God. Who did Jesus purchase these people for? For God. We're not singing about how Jesus purchased salvation for me. We're singing about how Jesus purchased me for God in heaven. <laughs> we kind of get this backwards a little bit. We, we tend to be man-centered, even though we try not to be. But heaven sings about how all these people now have been purchased for God, for His glory, for His benefit. Jesus did die for you, but He also died for God. He died to bring you to God, to, to bring these trophies of grace to God, to be worshipers of Him forevermore. We're also told that He made us to be a kingdom in verse 9. Oh, it's verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. So, he made us to be a kingdom. Jesus is the king. We're his subjects. And to be a Christian means that you have submitted your will, your life, to King Jesus. You're, you're following in King Jesus now, not Satan, not your own will. You've given yourself over to Christ. He's your master. You're following him now. We're also told that Jesus made us to be priests to our God. So those priests are those who are privileged to draw near to God. It was the high priest in the Old Testament that could enter the Holy of Holies. And the very manifest presence of God, he was able to go and to be in God's presence once a year. That was it. But he was the only one on the planet who was given that privilege. 
We are all priests to God if you're a Christian. You have the privilege of going before the Lord in his very presence and drawing nearer to the throne of grace. You're a priest of God. We already are. We're, right now we are. Read First Peter chapter 2. And you'll see we're all priests of God. That what was broken? That the veil was broken and oh, yes, yes. We, we are not, we're not mediators like Christ. I'm not saying it in that sense. But a priest draws near to God. That's one of the things. The second thing is he brings sacrifices to God. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 13 that the sacrifices that we bring are thanks, praise, doing good, and sharing. So those are just representative of some of the kinds of sacrifices that the Christian offers God. We offer the sacrifice of praise. Or like Melissa was sharing, she went out to help that homeless person. There's a sacrifice of doing good and sharing. She was exercising her priestly role when she did that. All of us have the, the privilege and opportunity to act as priests in this world by offering God sacrifices. Does that make sense? Okay, and then we find also that the rest of the angels join into this whole thing in verse 11. This really gets exciting too. He says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, <laughs> and thousands of thousands. In other words, hundreds of million and millions more. I mean, so many he couldn't count them. It would take him a long time to count up all these people. There, there, there were an innumerable host there in heaven, all worshiping God and the Lamb. And in verse 12, all of these creatures say with a loud voice, you can imagine how loud it's going to be just by the numbers of the people. If you've got millions of people all saying this at the same time, it's going to be pretty loud. And also by the passion in which they're proclaiming their praise and the messages, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy. Is, that's the message of all of these creatures of heaven. Christ is worthy. And they use seven synonyms, seven ways to describe why he's worthy in verse 12. He's worthy because he was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. He's worthy of all those things. And here we have the answer to the question, who is worthy to take the book and to break its seals? Jesus Christ is the one worthy. And all heaven knows the answer now. And then, that's not the end of the, the, the story here. Verse 13 says, even more people get involved after this. All of creation is going to join into this worship celebration. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, amen. and the elders fell down and worshiped. The sense of this verse seems to be that all of creation, everything, the, the universe now sees who Christ is and they acknowledge his, his worthiness. Okay, so we've seen what going on in heaven now. Let's just, a few final thoughts 
of application as we conclude our time today. Number one, heaven worships Jesus as Redeemer. We saw that, verse 9. Heaven worships Jesus for his cross, his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, his atoning work. And that tells me that the cross should be central to our praise and our worship here below. So when we gather to sing God's praises, let's make sure we include what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross as being central to our praise. It's also central every time we take the Lord's Supper because we're remembering the cross work. So the cross is at the very center of heaven's worship. Number two, heaven worships Jesus in joyful celebration. They use harps, there's loud voices, and there's singing. So our worship and our praise should be joy, a joyful celebration as well. It shouldn't be like this dirge, <laughs> you know, a funeral dirge. It should be happy, it should be celebratory, it should be exciting. Because, well, Psalm 100 verse 1 says, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. So that, now, that's the kind of worship we're going to be experiencing in heaven. Why not bring a little of that down here and experience it now? Yeah. And number three, heaven worships Jesus as equal with God the Father. They're both on the throne. They're both worshiped together. The, the, these, these creatures in heaven fall down before both of them and worship both of them. Even when Jesus walked the earth, there were people that worshiped him. I'll just give you a few scriptures if you want to jot these down. Yeah. Matthew 2, 11. The wise men, at, when Jesus was born, the wise men came and worshiped Jesus. Matthew 14, 33. The disciples worshiped Jesus after he stilled the winds and the waves. What was that, the, Matthew, what? Matthew 14, The disciples are worshiping him. And then Matthew 28, verse 9. When, when Jesus was resurrected from the, de the dead, the Bible says the disciples worshipped him in that verse. In Matthew 28, 17, the disciples again worship Jesus right before he gives the Great Commission. They're worshipping him. In Luke 24, 52, the disciples worship Jesus after he ascended to heaven. So he ascends to heaven and it says they worshipped him. And then in John 9, 38, the blind man that Jesus healed worshiped Jesus after he was healed. The Bible never condemns anybody who worshiped Jesus while he walked the earth. It never disparages them. It only encourages and shows us them as good examples for our faith. So if there's anything I can do today to help you, I want to encourage you to worship Jesus. He's worthy of your worship. Don't ever feel like, well, I wonder if I should not be worshiping him. Maybe I should just worship the Father. No, no, you should worship Christ. And the center point of your thoughts and your heart should be what he has accomplished when he died on that cross and rose from the dead. The heart of the gospel. A Christian is one who glories in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God has called us to be worshipers. Lord, would you help us to walk in that calling to bring honor to you, Lord? We pray that our gatherings, our church gatherings here on earth would reflect what we see happening here in heaven. Wow. It, <laughs> that would be some worship meeting, Lord, if, 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 if we saw the same kind of thing happening down here. And we pray that we would more and more be conformed to that kind of praise, that kind of worship.
Lift up Christ in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.